Welcome to the Being Better Together podcast from Learning from Excellence and Civility Saves Lives. This podcast is a series of conversations with people who inspire us about making healthcare a better place to work. We cover a wealth of topics from workplace cultures through inspiration, laughter, joy, to appreciative inquiry and how to do work safely. Hi, it's Chris here from Civility Saves Lives. In today's episode of Being Better Together, Adrian and I got to interview the very lovely Margaret Moore, Director at the Institute for Coaching. We had a wide-ranging chat and we touched on lots of different things, including how she got into coaching, how we motivate each other, and we did get a little bit into Deci and Ryan's intrinsic motivation theory. We talked about how appreciative inquiry can be used in coaching and her take on the benefits and need for better coaching in healthcare. I hope you enjoy it. So I came across uh, your work, Margaret, when I was doing some research for an article I was writing about the impact of positive feedback. And I came across some uh, neuroscience and neuroimaging work and then followed the trail and came to the Institute of Coaching. Um, so I was wondering if you could just tell us by kind of way of introduction what the Institute of Coaching is and what your role in it is, and also a bit about your career so far. How did you get to where you are now? Yeah, so uh, I uh, am a biologist with an MBA, and um, I like to be at the beginning of new fields. And so when I was finishing my MBA degree, I wanted to get into biotechnology and I could not get a green card. There wasn't, I'm a Canadian, there wasn't much happening in Canada. So um, I finished my MBA at London Business School. So I lived in the UK for the next years, six years. I, I started my biotech career and and I spent another, you know, a 17 year stint altogether um, in the biotech world, also in the US, Canada and some short time in France. Um, and I was in the vaccines business as well. So. Um, why that's important is that because I was the, a business person managing R&D people and projects, um, I had to spend a lot of time reading scientific papers and translating them for non-scientists. And, um, and that in part is what brings me to the Institute because the Institute is focused on uh, coaching science. We started in 2009. So if you you know, the, the, the coaching industry, which is global, the first big wave was leadership and executive coaching. And in and most of that was not driven by psychologists or folks mindful of scientific frameworks. In, however, in the UK and in Australia, there is in fact a tradition of coaching psychology. In fact, around the same time I started in coaching. So I moved into coaching in 2000 because um, I saw a huge need to bring um, a coaching workforce into healthcare to help people work on health behavior change and self-care that is a big driver of disease, right? And that, so that was a new field. And when I started in coaching, there was really um, outside, well, just getting started actually in the UK and Australia, there was not a scientific tra uh, scientific tradition. There wasn't a foundation of science behind coaching. And from my biotech world, you know, I knew we weren't going to make it in healthcare if we didn't figure that out. So I spent the first, you know, eight years or so building 
protocols, integrating all the main theories with a team and started a school, Well Coaches, which has now trained 13,000 health professionals as coaches, including a large cadre of doctors who are coaching other doctors now. Um, so we really, I sort of really, I'm one of the thought leaders, not uh, of course the only one, but I'm one of the thought leaders that really spoke for coaching science and figure out how to bring science and practice together. And which is why, but because I was in so early, you know, I didn't have a psychology background or a, phys, a medical degree, so I'm an MBA, right? That's unusual. But because I was in at the ground floor, you know, I was able to help shape that conversation and help shape the literature, help shape the emergence. And so I was looking for a academic home for coaching because I had a private school, but I knew in healthcare we would need that. And so. Um, at the International Coach Federation, they had a coaching research symposia, and I met up with all the like-minded folks who wanted to see coaching science, and I started a team that created a theory for the intuitive dance of coaching, which was, you know, back in 2004, intuition was a woo-woo topic. Now it has a neuroscience base, but back then it didn't. So, um, so out of that, I got to know Carol Kaufman, and Carol's at McLean Hospital. She's been a um, Harvard Medical School professor for decades, and so... I convinced her to start the institute at McLean, and now I've just become chair of the institute in the last um, year. Uh, so, and that's a, that's a statesman-like role in the field in terms of a spokesperson for coaching science. So, so at the core of this, um, you know, I didn't really know I was a coach until I got into it. I thought I would mm. just be a business person and leader, but coaching is a beautiful skill set for helping have powerful conversations that inspire other people and help them decide to make real change to their yeah. minds and behavior. And, um, and thankfully, a lot of the science that we rest on now has been ha has come out in this last 20 years. You know, for example, the science around how emotions are made, Lisa Feldman Barrett at Northeastern, she's a, also a Canadian from the same area of Canada that I'm from, She's done some amazing work, um, both her own research, but also synthesizing a, a theory around how emotions are constructed, which is groundbreaking and has changed, has sort of shake, shaken up the whole field of emotional intelligence. And so, yeah, stuff like that is just... So is so, she the author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain? Yeah, yes. I just read that book literally um, a couple of weeks ago. Finished it. Brilliant. And again, a bit like, I think... Um, what you do is you can condense science um, into very sort of concise um, lay speak, uh, very easy to understand. Talking of lay speak, I wonder if this might be a, a decent opportunity for you to let us know um, what coaching is to you. Because within healthcare, we, we get the word coaching is bandied around a lot. Sure. and. Yeah. There's a lot of people talking about coaching conversations and coaching styles of leadership. And I'd be really interested to hear your, hopefully, um, layperson take on what that really looks like, particularly in healthcare. Yeah, so healthcare is an amazing place for coaching because it's relevant at every level. So, you know, you've got patient care and you want patients to be inspired, motivated, engaged in living well right so you so coaching conversations are designed to help others decide they want to make positive change 
and improve their um, their lives, their habits, and their mindsets, and the skills to make that happen. So it starts with patient focus. Then at the clinician level, um, healthcare is behind other industries in terms of professional development. You know, there you know you guys are as physicians, you're trained to 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 do to perform and there and performing is different from growing yourself performing is getting it right growing yourself is expanding and and being in that awkward uncomfortable i'm not sure what i'm doing kind of phase and you know the whole idea of de developing oneself means that you've got a it's a different lane right and healthcare is lacking that lane and so coaching is offering the opportunity for clinicians and, and leaders to stand back and reflect on who am I, who am I becoming as a leader, how am I uh, creating a culture of growth, how am I you know, cultivating innovation, how am I um, building on excellence. And so that's you know, wide open. Um, and that, that's, that's broader than the burnout well-being issues, but that's another right now. You know, um, physicians, nurse leaders are all, I have a lot of groups going on, you know, I've done dozens and dozens of group sessions in the last year, like several a week, with physicians, nurse practitioners on the, these topics around burn, burnout, well, well-being and professional development. And the coaching framework really provides a foundation to those conversations. And then you have the leadership level. If you actually want to have patient care, embrace, engage, you know, encourage patients to be fully engaged and clinicians, then you've got to have a leadership framework that is aligned with that. So the same principles for coaching that you use with patients are the ones you use to be a leader. And that's really what I've been dedicated to is to show, to show how that, that common set of elements works at all levels. And, and it's very unusual to have an industry where it's relevant at all levels. So let me just start by saying there's a core set of competencies. Um, where I've done the most work is articulating um, professional competencies for coaches that are patient facing. And now we have a national board exam developed in collaboration with the National Board of Medical Examiners, which does is responsible for physician licensing exams in the United States since 1915. They have a, you know, a very, so we, that's all laid out, you know, that's beautifully crafted. I have, my hands are all over it. <laughs> and I feel very, and, and actually the, my school, the, the code, the, the, our, our curriculum is more advanced than the national level. So I'm very clear on that. I'm just finishing up um, I'm an editor on an American Medical Association book called Coaching and Medical Education. And so that's basic coaching competencies for primarily physicians who are faculty at medical schools to rather than just advise and mentor to coach students and residents. And so I helped build those competencies and I wrote the chapter on the coaching theories that support that group. At the Institute of Coaching, we have a gang of um, physicians and other coaches working with physicians and healthcare leaders. And we're just starting a project using a Delphi process to identify coaching competencies that are different for healthcare than other industries mm -hmm. for coaching the mid-level. So this is not patient level, right? And I think, you know, in the next few years, that and that, that already could start to address the leadership competencies. So I'm sort of working from the ground up to establish you know, best practice competencies, which I hope, you know, all that's going to help your question, um, Chris, which is, you know, there's got to be, there's got to be, 
in, in healthcare, we need an evidence base, we need a scientific base for the techniques, and then we need to study the outcomes of those interventions. So yeah, so we're doing the right things, you know, step by step, like a ladder. When can we expect to see the book? Because you've whetted my appetite. Uh, we just finished, if, uh, I actually don't know when it's published, um, in a few months. It's um, it's El Sevier. Yeah, I think we, I think by the end of this month, everything's been edited. And so it's just the final finishing touches. Awesome. So when we um, started this Learn From Excellence endeavor and the initiative, uh, we were capturing what's working well. And then we thought we could try and delve into this a bit more and understand uh, rather than just expecting people to report something when they see something good happening. It's actually, can we ask questions? Can we inquire about okay. the conditions that lead to excellence? And we, we really were just doing this um, out of interest and the, I guess passion. And then we discovered appreciative inquiry through um, asking around literature searching, etc., and discovered that actually, certainly for some of us, it's felt quite intuitive to ask positively framed questions about what has gone well and what could go uh, well in the future based on, on, on those circumstances. And I noticed on the Institute of Coaching and, and when we had a conversation before that appreciative inquiry is, is mentioned and that there seems to be a lot of similarities between taking a positive approach to coaching and appreciative inquiry. So can you, for us and for the benefit of the community who's listening, kind of differentiate between the two and say, where are they similar and where are they different? Right. Well, uh, so coaching is made up of a collection of tools. Um, so coaches are fairly promiscuous when it comes to mixing and matching tools. And so appreciative inquiry, in fact, if you read our Well Coaches Coaching Psychology Manual, you know, we have a whole section. We, we early on, like in the early 2000s, we created a coaching tool from appreciative inquiry. So we take, you know, tools from motivational interviewing, from self-determination theory, from immunity to change, and we make them into coaching tools, and then we weave them into coaching conversations. So appreciative inquiry is a very important coaching tool. Um, and um, David Cooper Ryder actually presented at our Institute of Coaching conference, and we're probably due to have him back. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, he did his PhD at, at uh, Cleveland Clinic, and that's he mm. at that time the Cleveland Clinic culture was was based on appreciative inquiry. So appreciative inquiry is this beautiful um, process. Um, I've demonstrated it as a coaching tool many times, where you don't talk about problems. Mm. That's really interesting about it. There are other tools. In fact, in my coaching theories. Um, chapter that I just upped, so it's sort of the latest from the literature and, and putting that together. Uh, there are other tools that spend a good amount of time using the obstacles as a force of growth. So, uh, so, so the difference, the, the fundamental difference between appreciative inquiry and other tools is that, that um, appreciative inquiry intentionally doesn't talk about problems. Mm. Um, and uh, there are different schools of thought. Um, I, I love the positivity focus of appreciative inquiry because, you know, we now know from positive psychology that people need adequate psychological capital. Hmm. Right now that includes hope, efficacy, resilience, and optimism, which are all science-based domains. And it will probably 
expand beyond that, but we need positive psychological resources to be able to be resilient in order to change. So what Barbara Fredrickson showed is that you need to have adequate levels of positive emotions of all kinds, from life satisfaction to just positive affect, from states of flow to meaning to, you know, there's lots of different kinds. It come, comes in lots of flavors, um, the, pos the positivity experience, but you need to have enough of those to have wind in your sails. Um, if you, if you, I've seen this in, in coaching, um, in medical settings, people who have low positivity ratios. So if you know Barbara Fredrickson's positivity ratio, it's a quick assessment. Um, you need to have at least three positive emotions for every negative emotion to be beyond surviving. Depression is one to one. And so people who are below three to one don't do well with health behavior change to be honest. And so what they need is actually an emphasis on creating more positive experiences and mindsets before they even embark on doing tougher kinds of change. So I, so the, the positivity that comes out of appreciative inquiry is the, you know, in addition to motivation, which is a different, a different component. But if you take positive resources and motivation, those create the foundation for change, which is growing competence, growing skills, growing knowledge, changing your mindsets, mm -hmm. right? So they're, the, they're what allow you to get, get going. Um, I then prefer in my own, you know, I then like going after the jugular, going after the big obstacle. So like the, the Stoics called yeah. the obstacle is the way. And yeah. I, in my leadership coaching, which I'm starting with this, group of police leaders, that's where we're starting, you know, mm. you've got a vision, your motivation, you've got your resources, your psychological resources and strengths and positivity. And then let's, let's tune into where's the stress points, what's causing a struggle, where are you most concerned, what's depressing your confidence level most, and let's go right into that. And let's break through that. Yeah, because that, that's a creative process. And if people are uplifted by positive resources and motivation, you can help them have an insight and shift and realize, oh, wow, if I can shift that, maybe I can shift that, if I can shift that, so they start to have some hope. So I see it as part of the equation, but I'm a big believer in having the other models that also get at the, the yeah. things that get in the way. I like that analogy of like having tools, or having a toolkit. Yes. I've, I've noticed often when I do appreciative inquiry that people will tell you the problems anyway. It's interesting, it may be the way that I ask the questions, but often we'll say, well, let's look at this piece of excellence that we've just witnessed. And then you get on to asking, how can we do more of this? Or what could we change to create the condition to make this better? And and maybe it's healthcare, uh, or maybe it's the way I ask the question, but often then get told about the negatives or the obstacles. And in fact, I, what I try and do then is, is focus on how we overcome it. So how have we overcome this in the past? And then you're back on the kind of positive framing again right yes it's very important how you handle that part of the conversation because um if, if, if i can share with you at some point the vision tool we built years ago at well coaches um where we intentionally don't talk about the problems until the very end so we get through what's making you thrive what's positive and we say so the problem comes up we say nope not right now let's wait it's not gonna, we're just not going to talk about that right now just, so yeah. we don't allow them to go there because because the, the, it's a downward spiral quickly right and yeah. and so so healthcare healthcare is about fixing problems right 
you guys yeah, are wired yeah. to look for problems. I mean, that's exactly yeah. the patient comes in, they're a problem mm. to solve, mm. right? Mm. They're not a they're not a life to uplift, right? They're a and yeah. so I mean that's it's the entire orientation. It's hard to break f- free from that. Yeah, no, I think that's why we're so good at negativity. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I'm I'm married to a lawyer, and when we got into the lawyers, also have a have a are prone to look for downsides, mm. right? Mm. What are the risks here? And so you have a high incidence of suicide and depression in the legal profession. And a good amount of doctors too, and so yeah, you have to actually consciously cultivate the opposite. So you wanna you you wanna stay out of that part of the conversation intentionally and explain. Now we're gonna just keep going on this these five topics before we get to the challenges, because then, the challenges are yeah. lighter when you get the rest done first. Okay, that's interesting. And then so you mentioned that I was gonna ask you a bit about positive psychology and the kind of um, influence it's had on your work. Um, you mentioned these kind of elements of psychological capital. I think you referred to them. Could yeah. you just run through those again? Yes. Yeah, so this work comes out of the University of Michigan. Um, there's resources at the Institute of Coaching as well. So, so uh, there are you know three really big buckets that have emerged from positive psychology that coaches use a lot. Mm. One is strengths, character strengths in particular because that's a, a, that's a really nice model that fits very well in healthcare um, because it's, it is science-based, it's simple, it's free, everyone can do it. It's, um, if you want a quick getting somebody from, you know, I've got a big problem to solve to, oh my goodness, I have three do- new ideas, you have them pick a character strength and use it and it takes a few minutes, it's, it's, ama- it's amazing. So strengths, because we, we focus on our weaknesses, we don't even remember, only in I don't know whether the, what the latest data is, but something less than a half of adults know what their strengths are. So that's a great place to play around. The, the second is positive emotions from Barbara Fredrickson's work because positive emotions um, uh, have a big physiological impact. They reverse the negative emotions, you know, so everything chronic stress does in um, upregulating inflammatory, you know, cytokine IL-6 pathway and downregulating antiviral and IgG, Positive emotions likely counter that, right? They improve vagal tone. Um, so they have a lot of downstream physiological effects which accumulate over time to improve health and counter you know, chronic stress. Um, and then in the moment they improve brain function. So open mind, less bias, more creativity, um, all, all of those things. So positive emotions are great. So then the third um, big domain is psychological capital. And that work's been done largely in workplace settings um and there's a whole oxford handbook on this you know it's big it's a big topic so psychological capital started 15 years ago and basically to make it into the definition the 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 dimension of psychological capital has to have a very good evidence base be easily easy easily measured and tracked etc so the four things that that have earned that um, status right now are uh, summarized by the acronym HERO. So H is for hope. That's Snyder, uh, Charles Snyder's work in hope psychology. Um, the quickie coaching tool is that if people have at least three possible ways around an obstacle, they have more hope. So you've won your 
brainstorming, you help people get to three new yeah. things. Because it's not that you've cracked it. You don't know which one's going to work, but you think you can be creative and you can continue to be creative till you find it. So that's that's hope. And then hero, E is for efficacy, which is self-efficacy, which is confidence. So when you feel confident, um, you move forward in behavior. And when you don't, you hold back. So confidence is a major, major regulator of our behavior. Mm. You, know, you know, a child steps forward when they're comfortable and confident and safe, and they step back when they don't. It drives behavior, whether you realize it or not. You are completely regulated in any, any moment by your so self-efficacy, you know, Bandura's work, um, you know, trans, lots and lots of models impact self-efficacy. So there's lots. It's a rich place to play uh, yeah. coaching. Um, then R is for resilience. Resilience is a fairly generic term um, uh, around bouncing back. There's lots and lots of data around that. Um, and and resilience, in fact, there's a nice coaching, a randomized control study in leadership coaching by Eric Dehan, um, showing that the moder the mediating factor um, between coaching and goal attainment and um, well-being is resilience. So what is happening in coaching is we help the obstacles look smaller. And so by either making the psychological resources higher, so you look down on them and they look smaller, you know, like looking down from a mountaintop, you're up higher, they're smaller, um, more resources to handle them, you've built the competence to handle them, because the, 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 the obstacles are where you don't yet have the software, right? You haven't really learned how to figure out your schedule and your, and your you know, mindset, et cetera. So, so that's resilience. And then um, the O is optimism. And that comes out of Marty Seligman's work in mm. learned optimism, you know, who was the mm. one of the founding um, fathers of positive psychology. And, you know, op humans and Terry Charot's work shows that humans are irrationally optimistic. So we're more optimistic than what circumstances would suggest. So depressed people are usually realistic. Right. They are actually, they have a good assessment of what's yeah. ahead. Um, but as a result of not being optimistic, they don't get out of bed because they yeah. are too realistic. So, in fact, it's adaptive for humans to have optimistic views. It's, as an entrepreneur myself, I know how this works. Mm. You know, you know you're being a bit optimistic, but you gets you going. It gets you, you know, moving. So, yes. Yeah, so optimism has also been mapped out, and and you know, there's and, and it, it. A lot of these are, you know, related to personality traits, states, genetics too, right? So you know, there's a there's a there's a there's a range of human optimism, and there's a range of folks, in terms of resilience. So yeah. So those are the four components you're smiling chris I, I as i'm listening to you i'm sitting here thinking when my wife listens to this she will be resonating like a resonating thing when it gets the bit about uh, pessimists having a realistic view of the world she said as she was she said to me that if she'd been a roman she would have been pessimus maximus <laughs> that, that would be her roman name <laughs> we have this we have this thing of like Chris, you see it that way, but you are completely wrong. And I, and I have eternal hope in people. And I still believe that I'm right. Even if those pessimists actually are, are in fact, correct. 
Um, but they can be changed. I, I, my husband now reminds me when I'm getting too negative. So he mm. completely got drank the uh, proverbial Kool-Aid, as we say here. <laughs> I wonder, you, you've mentioned quite a lot of the science there, and I, and I, I love it. I love it. I love hearing the science. Um, and I've already got my little list of things I'm going to go away and look up afterwards, um, which will be a big list by the end, I suspect. But I wondered, is there any really foundational science, that the stuff that made you stop and pause and go, hang on, I think this really does begin to prove what we're talking about. Is there yeah. any of that stuff that you might be able to sort of point us in a direction? Right. So, so, yeah, and I'm not, we're not talking about outcomes research. We're talking about the scientific foundation for why is the coach approach. Yeah, so um, the, the it is self-determination theory, which is a theory that is larger than all of positive psychology. Um, cultivated, so there's a nice website now, selfdeterminationtheory.org. So, uh, in fact, our Harvard Medical School Institute of Coaching Conference, Rich Ryan, is going to be presenting. He's fantastic. And we have um, videos of him. Um, Self-determination theory, and there's a nice handbook from two years ago, and you would, you know, it's it's fairly heavily psychological, but um, it's worth it. Uh, so, up until self-determination theory, the the model of human motivation that we all leaned on was Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it didn't have any outcomes data. It was just a guess. And um, Ed Diener, who just sadly died, um, Mr. Wellbeing, um, at Gallup, they did studies to show that in um, low-income places where people didn't have enough to eat, they still wanted to self-actualize. They wanted to give to others. They would give what they have. So, so it isn't really a hierarchy in the way that yeah. that Maslow came up with. They're probably all robust. What DC and Ryan showed is that there are three psychological needs which trump everything, through which everything flows. So everything's downstream. And if you if those three needs are thwarted, you move. If if you think about well-being from plus. 10 to 0 to minus 10. If you those three needs are thwarted, you move below 0. And um, he has a whole section in their book on pathology, what happens when those needs are thwarted. So the three, the primary need of humans is autonomy. Primary, all across all cultures. We need to live by our own values, march to our own drummer, make our own choices and you know you see it, it you, if you remember you know babies are asserting their autonomy all the time throwing their peas on the floor doing you know they've got they've got control of things right then you have teenagers who are like autonomy machines hatching right because because the drive for autonomy is likely evolved because we have to leave the comfort of the nest to go out in the big, bad, dangerous world. And so you have a lot of force to get you out there. That means you've got to self-determine. You want to be you. You want to find your way. And and then and then folks, seniors, are losing their autonomy. They're stepping down, right? They lose their ability to drive. And so it, it, the loss of autonomy in the last stage of life is devastating, devastating. It's really hard to deal with that. So it's a very core need. And um, and a lot of 
counseling and therapeutic interventions give people the answers, not put them at the steering wheel. And um, coaching is designed to put people at the steering wheel of their lives. So we, 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 we help them figure out how to drive. Where do you want to go? Why is that important to you? What inspires you? What, what gets you excited? What, you know, what, how do you, and so we're digging out a whole bunch of stuff that, because, because people lose autonomy. You know, you give up autonomy when you get married, you give up autonomy when you have kids, you give up your autonomy when you work in healthcare, right? You really give up your autonomy in healthcare. That's one of the biggest problems that healthcare has inflicted on the healthcare workforce, which has taken away autonomy. And that's the moral injury that is driving physicians mainly crazy. And, you know, somebody has to start waving that flag because doctors are highly autonomous beings. And we have, and, and, and anyway, I can go on about that. But um, so autonomy coaching is at its core about helping people find their own way and the second need is competence. People want to be competent, right? Whether you're learning how to walk or you're delivering a complex surgery. So we want that, right? So what are coaches doing? Helping you build competence. The third is relationships that support the other two. Hmm. Relationships that allow you to be who you are and grow yourself as a human being. And that's coaching in a nutshell. So that is, that is, that's it. Um, that is really why we, so we are directly a well-being intervention because we are, in fact, serving those three core needs just through the intervention of coaching. So if that's where the foundation sits, where do you see the, where do you see the future of the research in the area? What, what strikes you as something that we really would want to know about? In terms of human in terms of coaching, in terms of coaching, and it's yeah, so so um, there is uh, where are we right now? In the last twenty years, you know, in the healthcare space, patient center, patient focusing, we have you know more than one hundred and ten randomized controlled studies and uh, three meta analyses. So it could be more, but. You know, if you've looked at the evidence for all the things you do as a doctor, you know, that's a decent, that's a decent literature base. Mm. Um, and we did a systematic review. I didn't personally, but the, the field did a systematic review to define the elements of coaching first. And then we use that definition and those elements to screen the literature to make sure that we were calling coaching, coaching. And so, so that was, that's, that's that. Where do we go from here in health, in patient facing? Um, uh, lots more, you know, um, it, you know, you, there's a good amount of literature in obesity, chronic pain, cancer, um, where the big next phase is coaching as an adjunct in mental health. So not, not doing treatment, you know, psychiatric treatment therapy, but supporting, um, there's a nice paper that the U S department of veteran affairs Dep uh, division did, um, with, um, veterans who had uh, um, mentioned that they had suicidal ideation in the prior three months and they had a health coach for at least five sessions 
And um, it really did turn them around in terms of pointing their compass towards a better future. So we can, as coaches, we can do a lot in that space. That's on, on fairly much, fair, fairly untouched. Um, the whole team-based care is untouched. Um, so, uh, and then just the real world delivery of coaching in, in primary care, cardiology, all that, you know, you have, you have the randomized studies, but those are not real world conditions. So our next stage is large scale practice. So that's the healthcare space. The coaching physicians and say, and nurses and clinicians around their well-being and burnout, there are two randomized control studies. My team of well coaches, three of us, three of them were part of the second study. We did improve psychological capital, so we, that was one of the measures, as well as burnout um, and uh, professional engagement. So more to be done helping physicians, for sure. Uh, on the executive coaching side, it's like 15 randomized control studies, so it's much smaller. It's much harder in that field because that's that's not a standardized field like in healthcare you know you can imagine we've been able to standardize it as well as anyone can standardize coaching um and i i can take some credit for helping that happen over 20 years you know a long road to get there with a textbook and you know training thousands 10 13,000 health professionals etc um the, but the leadership area this is where i'm, I'm doing a, uh, an interview this week um, which is to say that leadership, coaching, and well-being are one system. We're humans. We're one system of common elements. Some of them express in leadership, where we're leading people and ourselves. Some express in how well we're doing and thriving. And some express in how we're helping other people grow. But it's the same core set of elements. Um, and so, so I think the next opportunity is really at the leadership level. The executive coaching side i think we can do a lot more in terms of i mean I, I know there will be executive coaches listening to me who will wince when i say this but i do think that there's room for more standards and um, science-based competencies at least in healthcare. i think we can do a lot more in healthcare to show what is good leadership and how do we get the most out of people and how do we help them thrive um in healthcare. i mean we really wouldn't that be amazing that that in that healthcare was a field where people, the workforce and leadership thrived. I mean, that's really, if you want to know where that's the future, that's the, that's the op opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I've just been in a leadership position for a few years and now talking to you, I realized I should have sought some coaching. Actually, I, I found it quite challenging at times. Um, uh, in retrospect, I learned a lot about myself and, and what I want from life and what my strengths are, but I, I could have been helped along the way, I think. Um, well, and there's that, that's just it, right? I mean, what support do you get to develop yourself in that role? Well, I think it's interesting because I think there is, yeah, there is some out there. There's, there's, I mean, the NHS, the National Health Service does offer kind of mentoring and some coaching. Um, but there may, I think, almost be a kind of stigma amongst healthcare professionals to seek it. I don't, that's me kind of speaking freely, but I felt like, you know, I should be able to just sort myself out. And yeah. <laughs> but now, yeah, I've realized that's actually ridiculous. Um, I want to bring you back to um, the kind of the, the, I suppose the big purpose of this meeting is to talk about learning from excellence and the and related topics. And I just wondered what your take on the whole concept of 
what we're doing in learning from excellence is based on what you know from your yes. the insights you have from all, all the work that you've done and, and just in a nutshell what learning from excellence is it's a voluntary reporting system um, whereby anyone working in healthcare and patients actually can identify as something that was excellent as as they perceive it you know com completely subjective and then feed it back and it's positive feedback to the individuals or the teams have done that and we think that improves morale well-being self-efficacy um, definitely and performance and does that kind of resonate seem like a good idea based on what you know i mean i love it <laughs> because i mean i really do because you know my physician clients who are doing QC stuff. It's you know it's and and, and if you if you know Adil Gawande's book on the checklist manifesto, mm. you know, it's all about avoiding. I, and I I've talked to people who want to coach surgeons around that kind of work, and I, I said you know what's the upside here? Like if you're just focusing on don't make mistakes, you know yeah. how inspiring is that? So I mm. think excellence is this beautiful place of human beings at their best, mm. right? And, and, you know, wow, wouldn't we like to make that every day, right? What that's, isn't that what we want? We want to be, we've got talents, mm. got education, we've got gifts. And don't we want to just like, you know, come out of the last hour of whatever we've done and said, darn, I did well, like, mm. how, like, so I think it's what people want. Like, I think it's, you know, the art of motorcycle maintenance, like high, like, mm. it's mm. like, what's, what is the best look like? It is mm. what we all want. And in fact, the coaching tool, um, intentional change theory and the well coaches model starts with a question, you know, what's your best self? Who's your ideal self? What does that look like? That's excellence. Just another word, another way of using it. So I think it is what we all aspire to with our at home too, with our kids, with our spouses mm. want. So I think you've nailed, you know, you've nailed the focus. Um, then, though, it needs a lot of unpacking. Hmm. I spent six two-hour sessions with a coach years ago um, on unpacking six times in my life where I had accomplished something important. And I thought, like, why am I doing this? Like, I really don't have time for this. And I launched my coach Meg brand out of that. Like I realized there was a Meg in me that wasn't Margaret <laughs> mm. because one of my models is multiplicity of mind, which is, you know, sort of strengths based, um, internal family. The mind is multiple and, um, and Meg is creative and Margaret's the MBA, you know, they're two, they are two different personalities and, um, we've all got, and, and physicians really lose behind their creative fun parts, right? You know, mm. You had to leave, you, you know, you, you clipped your wings a long time ago and you want to get that back. That's another, uh, another tangent, but, but excellence is really, um, it's like hitting the high notes in music. It's like, you know, it's the music of the universe when, you know, it's consciousness at its best. It's those mm. moments when things resonate, when things are really good, both in terms of humanity and, achievement and you know everything we're doing is to improve humanity one way or another whether you build a bridge or you fix an e or you 
have a coaching conversation or you, you know, you create a financial spreadsheet. Every we're all, all we're doing is helping humanity, right? Yeah. And when we do that really well, it sings like a choir on in tune, hitting the high notes. So I think it is an expression of human accomplishment that is inspiring for all of us. It's inspiration, which is its own scientific kind of construct. It's motivation, it's uplifting, it's it's, it's everything. And um, yeah, so I think I think healthcare needs a lot more of it. Yeah, a lot well, more. that's a that's a great review. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is the mission to make humanity better or make the experience of humanity better, isn't it? Um, totally, yeah. I really so wanted you to answer. Yeah, I don't think there's any relevance whatsoever. And I don't know why you've asked me here. I thought that would have just been the perfect answer in my world. Some pushback. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so you've mentioned teams and team coaching, and you just brushed quickly over it. But I suppose Adrian and I were talking earlier. We, we're both fans of Amy Edmondson and this this yeah, idea about right. psychological safety, and and I'm wondering where you feel that coaching of teams fits into the creation of psychological safety? Yeah, um, I've got um, three groups right now that I'm working with, um, two teams and and other groups. And, and um, it's great to be able to work with an entire team. So again, uh, a team is you know, I think we, we can over-intellectualize it. Um, I have this wonderful picture of um, a, a Canadian a husky dogs pulling a dog sled, you know, because I've done a little of that up in north of Lake Superior. And it when you see these dogs, they're so happy to be on that team. Pull, I mean, you just can't believe how happy they are to pull the sleigh. They're just, and they're in their different positions and they are, they can't wait to get out there and run in the snow. Yeah. And, and and um, there's another picture, I think of the, the Camargue uh, wild white horses in France. They run they run together in groups. There's some beautiful photos. And, and when I see those, I think, gosh, that's team, right? The sense of togetherness and doing more than we can do alone. And that we we have one mind when we're together. We have, we're unique and different and we're also one-minded. And so it's, uh, and then of course in sports, right? You know, it's almost like the players know where each other are without even mm. looking, right? They're just this, there's this, there's this very special collective consciousness of a team that is really amazing to watch. And in healthcare, teams are a big deal. So team is a really a special thing in in, um, and and we get to do that because a family's not quite a team. It can be occasionally. But it, you know, it's not, that's not the team experience we get at work. So, so how to make that great, you know, um, and if you know, um, Patrick Lancieri's books on the five dysfunctions of a team, you know, it starts with trust. Uh, without trust, you don't have anything. What's trust? Trust is that you got my back, I got your back, right? And if I'm having a bad day, or if I'm really worried about something, it's now into psychological safety. If I, if I've got concerns and I don't feel safe to share them, then think about you know surgical team. If there's somebody that's worried that something's going wrong, but they don't feel safe to raise it, there's consequences, right? Life and death consequences. 
and so so trust is well trust is the fabric of human society and it's the fabric of a team and it's it's about about agreeing to disagree it's it's allowing instead of letting conflicts um, fester it's getting them out it's exploring differences it's being welcoming of differences it's listening um, you know the in terms of um, team dynamics you know you want to be um, listening more than you're speaking you want to have a good level of positive emotions you want to be focused a little bit on the greater good because that's the inspiration that lifts us lifts us out of just our daily grind of being you know a human being that needs to get through the day right we got to get ourselves up a little bit so yeah so teams are a beautiful place and they can go wrong in a gazillion ways right um, people dynamics you know conflicts um, like a trust uh, and it can take a long time to unravel all that especially if there's deep-seated you know betrayals and you know uh, and, and what what you know back to autonomy people do not want to be controlled hmm. they 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 really hate being controlled hmm. and when you have team leaders or people on the team that are controlling then you get rebellion and then you get you know and so all kind all the whole of human dynamics plays out you've got team leaders who are parenting and then what happens when you parent you end up with children <laughs> they're whining they're you know, so if you're going to be a leader and be a parent, you're going to get kids, children, children kinds of behaviors of being victimized and all that kind of stuff. So so you need adult relationships, mature relationships, good conversations. And so, yeah, it's a great place for coaches to play. Ideally, if, especially if you get some one on one time with people, too, so you can get at get at it from both angles. One, one of the angles that we interested in regarding kind of psychological safety within teams is whether like the the prevailing culture must influence or it's part of psychological safety i suppose so if if there's a prevailing culture where you where one is appreciative of one's colleagues and one's successes yeah and you know kind of our hypothesis i suppose is that that would be more conducive to psychological safety so if i'm if i'm using learning from excellence or appreciative inquiry as as routine in my in my workplace are my colleagues and myself more likely to be able to face up to our mistakes? I mean, that's really yeah. just putting on the table for you to think about. Well, so, then, so then let me throw in coaching culture because the coaching mm. culture, back to where I started, is, is one where people are um, able to say, I'm learning here. Mm -hmm. I'm out of my, I'm out of, you know, I'm not sure what to do here. I've never done this before. I'm learning. And the, uh, the courage to say I'm learning, you don't have to say I'm making mistakes or you just say I'm learning. This is my, yeah. I'm, I'm not performing right now. I'm performing when I'm doing excellence. I'm learning when I'm not, but I don't get to excellence if I don't learn to get there, right? So you have to create space for the conversations where people can be honest about what they are learning and what causes them. So where do you know you're learning and where are you have stress? Because stress is the signpost that says you're in over your head right now. Your the, the demands of the moment are greater than your skills right now. Maybe mm. if you're rested and well fed and well supported, you'd be okay or or not. But but stress is the sign that you're in over your head. And when you're people can tell you're stressed, so you're not it's not like you're I mean, sometimes people can hold it back and hide it, but generally, you know, you start to get you're more controlling because stress means vulnerability. And then 
you move into more control in order to manage your own vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so you want you the coaching culture is when one where you're both performing, achieving excellence and growing into excellence in parallel. And you create that and the culture is basically just the sum of all the relational practices that go on all day long, right? And the ones that are positive and supportive and empathetic and compassionate to the growing part and the and the vulnerability part and the fear part. I have um, um, a conversation with leaders now, for some reason it's just more alive right now, about uh, uh, coming from fear versus coming from potential. So when you're coming from fear, you're saying something as a leader, I'm really afraid something bad's going to happen, guys. I'm really nervous mm-hmm. about this going wrong. I'm I'm worried. I'm concerned. And you think, well, I'm the boss, and therefore, when I tell people I'm concerned, they're going to listen. But they feel controlled by that because they may not be feeling the same fear. They may not see around the corner in the way that you are. And when you're back to Lisa Feldman Barrett, when you're coming from fear, the fear is like wearing virtual reality glasses. It, you are actually seeing the situation through your fear, and you actually have to wake up and see it as it is the potential of the moment and if you're seeing through fear you won't see potential and it's just you can't both so so you really if you have a culture of fear we're afraid this is going to happen you know we're nervous about this we're trying to avoid bad things happening then if you're not gonna you're gonna miss the good you're gonna miss the good in the moment right so Uh, that's so that's just an example of having open conversations okay you said you're coming from fear what would it mean to come from potential you know like real conversations where you really help people see their blind spots yes. that fits in for me with something that Adrian did for me which I just done with my youngest who's eight and um, I, I get terrible stage fright uh, I hate it I'm, uh, and Adrian because he's such a lovely guy, puts me on last on conferences and watches me disintegrate throughout the day, which I'm sure is a little fun for him. Um, not intentional. And, but, but what he said to me one day, uh, you probably don't even remember yeah. this, he said, so you're feeling anxiety. So could that actually just be excitement? Mm. Is that excitement that you're feeling? And I went away and I thought about it, and I think I did manage to, to reframe it that way. And my, my youngest was going in for a piano exam and just the other day, and she was getting anxious, and she never really gets anxious. She's eight. She's an amazing wee person. Um, and we sat down and said, so you're feeling a bit anxious, but actually, are you not really just a bit excited because you've got this chance to go and play your music? And she said, yes, I am a bit. And it was great. So I was channeling Adrian at that moment in time. Um, and, nice. and that feels a little bit like some of this. Yeah. I mean, there's the physical origins and the sensation of emotion, isn't there? And then there's the judgment that follows it. It's an opportunity. It's, we're, we're keen on reframing. And at one of our previous, in fact, all of our previous conferences, we've had sessions on reframing. Mm-hmm. Um, Margaret, you mentioned learning uh, and kind of learning culture, coaching culture. Um, one of the things, in fact, it was how I came across your work in the first place was uh, trying to understand the impact of different types of feedback on learning. So this is actually, I'm talking about kind of, I guess, what would be called cognitive learning here, trying to learn a new skill or, or learn, um, acquire new knowledge. Um, and that this may be going off territory, but I imagine you've got thoughts on this, is, is what the relative impacts of positive feedback compared with negative feedback on learning. 
I've discovered and dipped into the literature a bit, but have you ever come across any of the science on this? Um, yeah, I just I was just writing something on a paper on goal setting um, mm. recently, which reminded me of studies around 360 feedback. So 360 yeah. is where you either do a survey or a group of interviews around your um, performance, and um, and and that feedback can actually reduce motivation. So mm. it's about okay, and we, we were getting to context because that's culture. The con the context matters, um, and uh, the environment matters. You know, I remember one of the original coaches, Thomas Leonard, used to talk about coaching the environment. So you're you're coaching the the context. So the, it's the context of the feedback. Um, I um, resonate with um, Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor. People focus on, you know, having the radical feedback, but at the end, she she talks about something that's more like coaching. So if you have a relationship with the other person where you know what their heartfelt aspirations are, what excellence looks like for them, where they want to go, and they know you know that, and they know that you they trust that you want to help them get there. You're not just trying to control them or assert what you know. When they know that you really believe that, that then then you can frame the feedback as so you want to get here. Here's an opportunity hmm. to, to make a shift that would serve where what you're aspiring to. So there's there's heartfelt sense of like I trust you care about my self determination and where I'm going and that you're giving me this in the context of what you think mm. that would be helpful. That's what I mean by context. Yeah. And, um, and so direct feedback that may be true, given in a context without true benevolence and support, um, then just feels like it's one ego fighting against mm. another, like I'm yeah. just... I'm just trying to show I'm just trying to make myself feel better because I happen to know what your weaknesses are and um you know and I just want to get you because you got me the last time so I'm gonna you know you know what I mean mm. I'm going to the basement here but mm. but the context matters totally yeah, matters. yeah and, the, and and in coaching this works because I, I learned this yeah. from Keegan um who's an amazing adult developmental psychologist he was at Harvard for decades um, now retired and watching him on stage with people who clearly had major blind spots and he had a way of showing deep, the deepest empathy to the human condition, just like how tough it is to being human, how much we suffer, how hard it is to live, you know, and face the inevitable of death, you know, all that stuff. He, he could just be so, like um so um accepting and understanding and and non-judgmental in a, the deepest way that you can convey in a, in a human and then he could say and we thought about this hmm. yeah. you know what do you think about that and like and then you'd be curious because you feel safe so back to psychological safety yeah so when you're when you feel safe not just safe to be vulnerable, but in hand, somebody is there with the tools to help you and the motivation to help you, and they're really there for you. They're not worried about their own excellence at this moment. 
because that's benevolence. You're serving other people's excellence because you might be doing an excellent job in doing that, but that's not why you're doing it because part of the human personality is to put others first. Autonomy is the opposite. We serve ourselves first, but we have a very strong force in the human repertoire to serve others first, even to die for them. You know, you think about the the biggest sacrifice one can make, right? That's there, that that we, we have the ability to give up our lives for, for other people. Right. And so um, so it's when you when you come from that place that you're truly in service and you really are there, then, yeah, you can you can go after the jugular. Um, and that's how I would define my coaching is love plus, you know, hey, what about that? Sounds that? Like em- empathy is a key kind of yeah. uh, deep, trait. Deep yeah. empathy. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not empathy. Like you really do feel what it's like to be where they are and you're fully accepting. Right. You're not judging it. So yeah. that's quite, that's quite um, exhausting, isn't it, to share people's feelings i mean you must have to invest a lot of energy yeah yeah it's um it's a different way of expressing yourself as a coach you know um because and i'm very clear like you know good deal of my life i'm doing my own thing i'm not coaching i have a very high need for autonomy as well Mm. and i have a high need to serve and i have to use i have Mm. to do both and Mm. so um and i'm very aware that they're very different and uh and um yeah, they're both really important. That's the, the, I mean, it's reminded me of, I've just um, came across this sort of distinction between empathy and compassion. And in fact, we've uh, just put a blog on our website about this. And I think that there is a theory out there that one of the reasons there's so much psychological morbidity in healthcare is, is there's so much empathy. And actually, if you're looking after patients are suffering the whole time and you're em- Pathetic, you will feel suffering, and uh, actually, an alternative is carrying it in. Yeah, yeah, and the alternative is to be compassionate, where you don't have to feel the suffering, but you just notice it, and you want to, you want to bring about yeah. change and relief of suffering. Yeah, there, there, it, you can, you can definitely deconstruct this into various components. Hmm. Um, and uh, Helen Reese, if you know her at MGH, has done that, and there's sort of neuroscience. There's, there's neural networks for each component. So, so the first is noticing the suffering, witnessing it. So you're not actually, a second is actually attuning to it. So it's actually, you're interjecting it. You're taking it. You actually feel it. Um, A third is understanding it, which is, you know, which is like, why is this happening? Mm. And a fourth is acting in a way to help. Mm. So, um, so if you happen to be like in Mars-Briggs, if you know your Mars-Briggs type, if you're an F and I'm not, I'm a T. Um, so that means I think about my feelings. I don't, I mean, they might be there, but I think about them and that the T's mm. and F are very different. F's can't stop feeling other people's feelings. Mm. I have to turn it on. Mm. And I'm very aware of the difference, you know, and as a coach, so you turn it on and turn it off. But if you're an F, it's always on. So you have to learn how to, Whereas the off switch, you have to actually, you've got to find a way to uh, be with it, but not feel it. And you got to know how much of it you can feel and how many, when you need to stop feeling it because you, it's so exactly. And, but that takes a fair amount of mindfulness and self-awareness, right? To realize, okay, here's a person who's suffering, grieving. They just got a cancer diagnosis, whatever it is. What can I give? 
and you and you consciously choose and sometimes you feel and they cry and you cry and you feel and you need to do that for a few minutes because that's what's going to help them but you also need to know how to turn it off because you can't you can't you know and then of course if it triggers your own unresolved grief and and feelings then you're now you're now you're in your own so there's a lot of awareness one gets from understanding emotions and how to how to work with them productively yeah. and and just the pure empathy that is yeah you can really burn out emotional exhaustion is what it's called yeah yeah well we could talk about this particular area for hours um it's really tapping into a rich vein um for me should we should we move on to the yeah. so you know i was going to ask a question about about incivility and coaching around incivility um but I, honestly, I think you've probably answered quite a lot of it in a kind of oblique way. But I had another question that, that's kind of burning a wee bit for me. And that is about coaching within healthcare, other than for executives and doctors. And I'm thinking about coaching specifically within nursing and allied healthcare professionals. And I just wondered if there was much, much work done on how coaching can impact upon different career paths other than the sort of medical and the executive ones yes yes there's um well first there's a whole kind of um industry called nurse coaching uh and um and so and there and and in the u.s there's a group called the american holistic nurses association i believe it is so holistic nursing is like an integrative nursing approach with healing and therapeutic modalities and then add coaching to that so there's a whole kind of um movement around and um and that group is uh often coaching nurses and often i mean i, I should mention when you get trained to become a coach as a doctor or a nurse you that that is a burnout intervention mm. all by itself yeah because you you start to focus more on your own internal processes of change. And then you also are more impactful with the people in your life, in your conversations. And so that those two things give you a good boost. So yes, yeah, so there's a there's a big need. Um, I'm working with a group of nurse practitioners at Mass General Hospital for a year, a t team of um, in oncology. And um, they're fun, they're great. Um, folks and uh they're very different it's very different than working with doctors very different and they they uh and um coaching the, the modalities still work you know you're helping them find a vision for who they want to be and and um become more whole and and get more experiences of excellence so it's it's no different um so so coaching is a universal set of competencies based on universal truths to the extent that science can generate truths um uh, especially when it comes to human nature it's pretty hard to do that right we're so complex our consciousness is so complex complex compared to biology but nevertheless um they are universal principles and they work in for all health professions and and if i could do one thing it would be to put every person in the healthcare workforce through a four-day coach training. I could do more with that than anything else I have to offer. Um, that's not probably going to happen anytime soon, but that's really what we're talking about is getting everyone 
to become awake to who they are and who they're becoming and why they're becoming who they're becoming. Mm-hmm. Coaching is about self-awareness, self-insight. It's hard to do that by yourself. You know, you're talking, Adrian. Like, uh, it's it's hard to see yourself through others' eyes. Hmm. It's really hard. It's really hard to see your blind. Well, you you can't see your blind spots, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So that that's why someone who's skilled at this is. So it's a great skill set for all of healthcare. But let me talk about this incivility because there's a lot of literature around coaching toxic leaders and bullying and hmm. and um and less around microaggressions. There's lots of room for improvement in terms of like how do we help people deal with that um, who are dealing with racial um, microaggressions, cultural microaggressions, ageism, ob you know all 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 manners and bias. Um, incivility is meanness. And meanness is an intention to harm. And intention to harm is not humanistic. Um, and um, and so, and we all have, you know, we're all, we all have little bits of evil in us. We all have a little bit of revenge. We've all got a little bit of meanness. You know, you may not share it out loud. It's part of the repertoire, right? It's the dark side. We all have a dark side. And, and in leadership, um, when you when you get more and more demands on you, uh, you uh, without conscious control create a shadow. Mm. <laughs> um, Eric Dehan I mentioned earlier has a lot of writing about a book on leadership shadows, and that's shadow side, your dark side. Yeah. Um, and um, it's controlling. Bullying is controlling. It's intimidating. It has a purpose. It it serves the serves the perpetrator, feeling a little stronger, a little more in control. Um, and yeah, it's a great place to shine a light because we all have it. We all have a dark side, even if we're really, really, really nice people. We have moments when, you know, you say things right to yourself or your spouse, you know, I wish that person would, blo- would you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so we all have it. It's, it's, it's built into the, it's built in. And when we're threatened, we are more uh, negative towards others. And so, yeah, so we just got to get the stuff out in the, in the fresh air and sunshine, have a look at it. Why am I like that? What causes it? What do I, when do why I have a surgeon call it a client. We all have a surgeon client. Lots of meanness. You know, we, we laugh about it now, but you know, I mean, talk, I mean, talk about you want to you want to slice and dice. My husband's a lawyer. I mean, I got a lot of slicing and dicing in the early part of our marriage. I got really good at it myself as a result. So, yeah, it's a part of the repertoire. It's big. It's it's part of medicine. It's mm. part of medicine, toxic yeah. behavior. I mean, yeah, it's quite so, astonishing. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. So it's it's all about self awareness, understanding, drawing up people's higher angels, mm. helping the. You know, we still talk about science. Self-compassion is teaching us that that self-compassion works better than meanness, and meanness for ourselves is self-criticism because we can be pretty mean towards ourselves. And it turns out that compassion works better than than meanness in motivation. But we haven't, you know, lots of industries really haven't got that memo yet, right? There still is a big question in corporate cultures: Do you get more from people by being mean and demanding? or being both, you know, loving and, and calling people to great performance 
that's the, that's the equation that we're figuring out as a human society right now. Mm. Yeah. The um, c compassion comes up again. Um, it's and there it is possible to train in compassion, isn't it? Although, I imagine it's wiring. Yeah. You yeah. Wire. Yeah. You have to get buy-in though for the. Uh, certain individuals that might be quite challenging to sit down and do compassion training, much of which involves, you know, what stuff which might be considered a bit woo-woo. Um, Not anymore. But yeah, may, it's more uh, accepted now. If, too. If you, if you read Feldman Barrett's book on seven and yeah. the brain, and you realize emotions are constructed by your brain to get your attention and to learn, and the amygdala is not this terrible organ that just causes mm. havoc, chaos. It needs a promotion. It's actually helping you to learn. Your I have a whole process for declipsing one's emotions to turn it into learning and integration. Mm -hmm. um, that's what emotions are there for. Is to they're 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 taking you to a better place. And if we treat them well and we metabolize them properly, they will turn into strength. Um, that and that's still cutting edge. Seeing emotions as productive. Yeah. Margaret, we we are running out of the time that we promised. Um, we wouldn't take up too much more of your time. There's a couple of things I just wanted to touch on, if that's okay. One is, I mean, we've we've already touched on how we could potentially address burnout and jading and adverse psychological phenomena that are very prevalent in healthcare, based on what you know what you've learned over the years in this career. Is there anything left in terms of addressing? Um, burnout and exhaustion that is so prevalent in healthcare that you think we should be engaging in? So uh, we haven't talked about post-traumatic growth, mm. um, oh, which mm. is, uh, which, you know, started 25 years ago. So it, 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 it the research was based on um, the study of parents who'd lost children, which is of course, uh, you know, one of the greatest tragedies that can happen. Um, and uh, the burnout and exhaustion and moral injury is trauma. Um, it's real trauma because mm -hmm. what you've done is you've taken away agency, autonomy. You've turned doctors and nurses into machines. You know, they're not which they're not. We're, they're humans, right? We're all humans. So, um, sorry, that was a dumb thing to say, but... <laughs> mm -hmm. so, to so the way you get to growth which usually takes more like a year. And there are five areas of growth, which very much tie into coaching. Um, you appreciate things more that you didn't appreciate before that you took for granted. You have deeper and changed relationships coming out of trauma. You have um, uh, new opportunities that wouldn't have happened without trauma. You have deeper meaning. Life is more meaningful. You make meaning from it. That's how you get through grief and trauma is you find the meaning, which means you grow, that it's meaningful, just the way the human psyche works. And then the last thing is strength. And so what we need to help, you know, healthcare workers who are dealing, we need to help, we have to understand it's trauma and we need to help them turn it into growth. And they can't do it alone. And we have to change the environment as well because there's a nice systematic review on resilience by um, published in a psychiatric journal that suggests that it isn't this hardy, rugged, heroic person that's resilient. It's actually the, the culture and support around us that that is responsible for at least half of resilience. So we have to we have to support 
individuals who are going through burnout to metabolize the trauma, which is hard work. It needs it need it needs self care, deep commitment to well being, deep healing. It's really um, and then second, we have to create cultures that don't allow it to happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to value the workforce. Yeah. What's happened is the value has gone to tech in this country, all the effort to create electronic health records instead of user-friendly technology. So now mm-hmm. doctors work every night for hours instead of enjoying life, mm-hmm. you know, all with all the charting. And then you've got the financial mandate, which means, and doctors don't have the responsibility for their profit and loss, so they don't even have the tools to make more money and make more profit because nobody's handing handing them the the toolbox. You're just told shave more expenses, bill more services, and so we've we're wasting the mastermind ability of a doctor to manage holistically what they do, and and know how to grow it instead of just cut costs and do tech, the tech stuff. So I think we just lost our way um, as mm. an industry. Um, that makes and, me think a lot of Don Berwick and yeah, to era definitely. three, Don Berwick's moving to era three medicine. And you, you said there, you said you mentioned briefly about healthcare staff as being machines, and then you said that's a dumb thing to say. But I don't think it is a dumb thing to say. I think there are many people out there who take a, a pure economics perspective of healthcare staff as units of production. And to them, they expect people to be like machines and to be able to take on ever greater burdens. And they almost accept that there will be an attrition of people as we go through and put people under more and more pressure. Will be we, yeah, will fall by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah, we've lost. I mean, you know, isn't it amazing we have to have research to prove that leading with humanity? Yeah. It's off. Yeah, that yeah. we have to study empathy and compassion to show that it's worth investing in. I mean, yeah, it? and it's yeah, self-evident, yeah. and yet we need to demonstrate it. It often comes down to kind of bottom line demonstration, doesn't it? Financial impact. Well, what's happened in terms of the human personality is that we put in, put it, again back to Mars Briggs, the extroverted thinking, the achieving, the numbers, the systems, the task. That part of the human repertoire, personality repertoire has um, been promoted to the boss. It's about numbers, about, you know, and that is only part of the human repertoire. And we've over, completely overdone it in our culture. And as a result, we have wealth and not that much well-being. Mm. Um, Mm. And we don't have a way, I mean, it's just all messed up. Our values just systems get the good thing is that we've got a report coming out at the Institute of Coaching showing that there was a value shift in leadership in the in the pandemic, at least in the people with the people we interviewed, the executives we interviewed, which is a shift towards more benevolence and more openness to change. And that's not everywhere. But the the there may be enough for such that leading, you know, with humanity becomes mm. how you lead. One you of lead the things people, not machines. Yeah. One of the things that worked well in my experience in the pandemic was when um, we were just asked on the pretty much on the shop floor, how, how can you deal with this? This is the situation we're going to have to do X, Y and Z, which inevitably means getting more patients in. 
um, how are you going to do it uh, rather than being told so actually the solutions right. came from the shop floor and that's um, it reminded me a lot of the uh, leadership style um, advocated by uh, David Mackay I think his name is the um, naval submarine commander who uh, wrote a book called turn the ship around it's all about this type of leadership style we should move on to the the core questions we are going to ask each of our guests three questions uh, this identical um, which are based on an appreciative inquiry uh, kind of format so it's a good job you didn't say it was terrible <laughs> um, so I starting off with what's the the best version of the future that you can imagine through a coaching lens um there's a book called the listening society about metamodernism which is a philosophy that follows if modernism is capitalism and postmodernism is liberalism modern metamodernism is the integration of the two and um, I think that's it, um, in that we need to support human well-being and the, human, the humanity, the human needs, the psychological needs for autonomy and competence and growth and, and um, you know, nourish people properly and then, and then give them um, freedom to self-determine and do great things, do mm -hmm. excellent. Um, so I think it's the, I think we need, I think we, we're more focused on the achievement side and less focused on the well-being side, but, but as a result of not focusing on the well-being, we don't get excellence the, the way we could. So I think we're, I mean, if you're a coach, you see that everybody's under potential, including myself, everybody, everybody's under potential. And it's the compassion and um, benevolence that is the base for people to go do great heroic things. Um, not just that. Tragedy can produce it. Adversity can produce it. It's not just that. But um, so, yeah, so I think that's when we when we can do both, we will get great. I mean, for me, creativity is everything, right? That's like, mm -hmm. we're like, what can I invent? What can I do next? What can what can we create? But you can't create if you're not well. And you mm -hmm. need, something, right? So yeah, so coaching is really about the combination of those two things, helping people really focus on their well-being and then create great, create, create, great, greatness. Yeah. Whatever that is for them. And so I think you've answered this, but if that's the kind of best version of the future, this metamodernism, uh, everyone is free to exercise their creativity. What, what's the difference between that future and where we are now? What's missing, or, or or what is added in the future? Um, well, I mean, if, 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 there's all kinds of issues in terms of our social structures, and like you know, we don't produce mentally strong, resilient young people into the world as well as we need to. So, um, you know, all mm. the folks that work on education and you know, healthy families and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's got to be done well better than we're doing it now that's not really where my focus is but that's mm. you know folks who are doing that, that's really important i think it's the workplace where where i think there's a lot of room for upgrade i mean when when you when you reflected back to me the creativity i thought oh gosh there's all these business leaders going to say i just need to get my jobs done like i just need to get mm. like things going 
where I really mean the creativity is to solve the big problems that we've got mm-hmm. in the world. You know, we have to figure out the climate change and the pollution and the, and, um, you know, people are still treated like machines, uh, maybe not in the tech industry, but in, a lot, in healthcare. So I think we need to create work that it accomplishes a lot more than it does, that, that we achieve much more because we're better at leading humans and helping them thrive and grow. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, the main thing, which is why I'm a coach now, is it's about growth. It's about growing yourself. It's not just performing. It's really about growing yourself. And I think if we as a society got a lot better at that, you know, you have a fight with your kid, you say, okay, how am I going to grow from this? Not like, how am I going to fix this relationship? Like, what's my, what's, what, how do I need to grow? If we can approach, use the growth mindset more consistently across life, we'll be a happier culture and we'll get more done. Hmm. Nice. I think we've kind of answered the yeah. question about how we get there. So yeah. it's you again, I think. Yeah. So uh, there's a we've asked our kind of community members if there are any questions for you, and a couple have come through. Um, one I just quickly read to you and see what your thoughts are. If coaching could transform healthcare to support staff and patients to feel their best, what would this look like? I think you've you've you mentioned that you would give everybody a four day coaching course. So that's I guess that's one intervention. I, I think it, it's the skill set that you just can't mm. learn from a book. You have to be in a live setting with other people coaching each other and, you know, watching the instructor do it masterfully and then yeah. trying and thinking, oh, gosh, like, I don't even know where to go with this conversation. I'm already in the trees. I've, you know, I've got three different ways to go. So you have to, it's a, it's a, it is a, um, I have a, I have a graphic you can, if, I can share with you if you wish. So, back to self-determination theory. When you're serving others, you're serving their autonomy, their competence through your relationship, okay? But when you're serving your own needs, you're judging people, that's your assertion of your autonomy. This is what I know and this is my values. Mm. You're rescuing people because you wanna help them and you're fixing them because you wanna show them how much you know. So the real transformation you make when you learn coaching is you you recognize that you're fixing, judging, and rescuing, and not facilitating, and that is a really big shift. That's the real shift. Yeah. And once you want, once you experience conversations that that come from the facilitating there, the other, mm. you don't want to go back to the fixing, mm. rescuing, and judging. So it's that is a transformational shift right there that you make. That's what I'd love to see everybody really get. Yeah, that's then, that's interesting. I mean, the as as particularly as doctors, we consider ourselves fixers. Um, so that's a, a, a different paradigm, isn't it? But subtly different. But um, it's 180 uh, degrees different. Okay, so so we need to look at, look at you're you're using your world differently instead of your yeah. thing. Yeah. You're not um, using the same parts of your brain. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I have one last question, but I've got to tell you, this is a deeply philosophical and intellectual question, and you may want extra time to answer it. When you walk in the room, what what song do you want people to be hearing? What's your theme tune? What's my theme tune? I have many. 
and I do when I teach my coaching psychology course I have a song for each uh, each section um, well I'm an introvert so I'm gonna pick the song that I want to hear um, mm -hmm. and you actually can't see I have a piano behind me and I've got um, the well-tempered clavier um, box prelude one so I'm from Toronto and Glenn Gould is from Toronto. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah, the alchemist. And, uh, his um, his recording of that um, piece was sent on a space. Did it go to the moon? It went on one of the space missions because mm -hmm. it was supposed to be the uh, an example of human excellence. Um, so, yeah, Glenn Gould playing Bach. So it's mm -hmm. the the beautiful harmony music is like for me uh is is how you, i experience excellence that the, the the way uh, harmony comes together the sounds the notes and that that's a very simple uh, piece to play i can still play it um but yeah that would be box prelude nice awesome thank you so what so much choice. um so thank you margaret it's been fantastic um your mind of knowledge and experience is, um, we could yeah, happily have talked could for have gone a, little, yeah. a little longer. <laughs> um, is there somewhere where we should direct the members of the community to find out more about you and the work that you're doing at the Institute? Yeah, so instituteofcoaching.org. Uh, um, my own website is coachmeg.com and then the schoolwellcoaches.com. So those are the three places Great. for me. And are you on social media? Uh, LinkedIn mostly. LinkedIn, okay. Um, cool. Well, I'm sure we can find you on there. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I particularly like the parts on Stoic philosophy, the hero model of coaching, and Margaret's thoughts on the power of reframing so that instead of coming from fear, we come from a place that sees potential. Mind you, what I think I'll be getting asked about at home is the Pessimist Maximus story. Until next time, thanks for listening to Being Better Together. Cheers now.